We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Everybody, good morning. Welcome this morning to Fellowship Bible Church. Our scripture reading is in Ezekiel 41 this morning. Ezekiel 41. I also wanted to acknowledge uh, the reappearance of one Steve Monty to the assembly. Many of you have seen him today. We are grateful for that. Very nice to be sitting by Grandpa there, huh, Chloe? Oh, she doesn't want me to say anything to her. Well, anyway, we're so glad about that, Steve. Welcome back. God bless you. Ezekiel 41 is where we have come in our reading of Scripture. It says, Then he brought me into the sanctuary and measured the doorposts, six cubits wide on one side and six cubits wide on the other side, the width of the tabernacle. The width of the entryway was ten cubits, and the side walls of the entrance were five cubits on this side and five cubits on the other side, and he measured its length forty cubits and its width twenty cubits. Also, he went inside and measured the doorposts two cubits and the entrance six cubits high and the width of the entrance seven cubits. He measured the length 20 cubits and with 20 cubits beyond the sanctuary. And he said to me, this is the most holy place. Now let me orient you, or uh, I guess that's the best word for now, to where we are at. We are looking at the future promised temple that will stand in the millennium. This temple will be in place in Jerusalem, in a new Jerusalem, not the new, new Jerusalem, but a new refurbished, if you will, one in the millennial kingdom before the eternal state begins, and uh, there will be many activities there, worship that happens in that place. And so we're looking at the design of it. God has promised that it's never been built, and it still will be, because God is faithful to his, his promises here. Verse number five, next, he measured the wall of the temple, six cubits, the width of each side chamber all around the temple was four cubits on every side. The side chambers were in the three stories, one above the other, 30 chambers in each story. They rested on ledges which were for the side chambers all around that they might be supported but not fastened to the wall of the temple. As one went up from story to story, the side chambers became wider all around because their supporting ledges in the wall of the uh, temple ascended like steps. Therefore, the width of the structure increased as one went from the lowest uh, story to the highest by way of the middle one. I also saw an elevation all around the temple. It was the foundation of the side chambers, a full rod that is six cubits high. The thickness of the outer wall of the side chambers was five cubits, and so also the remaining terrace by the place of the side chambers of the temple. And between it and the wall chambers was a width of 20 cubits all around the temple on every side. The doors of the side chambers opened on the terrace, one door toward the north and another toward the south, and the width of the terrace was five cubits all around. The building that faced the separating courtyard at its western end was 70 cubits wide, 
The wall of the building was five cubits thick all around and its length 90 cubits. These are some massive structures, aren't they? So he measured the temple 100 cubits long and the separating courtyard with the building and its walls was 100 cubits long. Also the width of the eastern face of the temple, including the separate separating courtyard, was 100 cubits. He measured the length of the building behind it facing the separate courtyard with its galleries on the one side and on the other side, 100 cubits, as well as the inner temple and the porches of the court, their doorposts and the beveled window frames and the galleries all around their three stories opposite the threshold were paneled with wood from the ground to the windows. The windows were covered from the space above the door even to the inner room as well as outside and on every wall all around inside and outside by measure. And it was made with cherubim and palm trees, a palm tree between cherub and cherub. Each cherub had two faces, so that the face of a man was toward a palm tree on one side and the face of a young lion toward a palm tree on the other side. Thus it was made throughout the temple all around, from the floor to the space above the door. And on the wall of the sanctuary, cherubim and palm trees were carved. The doorposts of the temple were square, as was the front of the sanctuary, their appearance was similar. The altar was of wood, three cubits high, and its length two cubits. Its corners, its length, and its sides were of wood. And he said to me, this is the table that is before the Lord. The temple and the sanctuary had two doors. The doors had two panels apiece, two folding panels, two panels for one door and two panels for the other door. Cherubim and palm trees were carved on the doors of the temple just as they were carved on the walls. A wooden canopy was on the front of the vestibule outside. There were beveled window frames and palm trees on one side and on the other, on the sides of the vestibule, also on the side chambers of the temple and on the canopies. Well, again, hard perhaps to imagine, but if you have a good three-dimensional kind of uh, way of processing things, maybe you can uh, picture some of that in your mind. All right, I'm going to invite uh, Naomi to uh, share an offertory and uh, music ministry. And gentlemen, we'll have you come forward. Father, we want to thank you again for the offering today as every week and be sure to acknowledge your good kindness to us. Today, my focus not so much on the offering, but the resources that you have granted to each of these families to be able to make an offering. You have provided for us this past week. Evidently, each has come to this meeting, uh, having been fed and sheltered and kept all of these uh, last seven days. And so we are grateful for that. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. Thank you. Let us pray again. Father in heaven, we've been given a number of requests this morning or have been things have been called to mind that we bring before you in an intercessory manner today. We're mindful to remember those who are our servants afar off and faraway lands. They have taken up the task of expanding the work of the gospel and the work of our church and like-minded churches in those places, and we pray you'd protect and keep them and help them in their ministries Every, everywhere around the globe and every time zone in the northern and southern and western and eastern, as it were, hemispheres. Father, we pray that you would please prosper those works, keep them, keep them faithful. And Lord, as our brother taught this morning, he reminded us that sometimes people do try to creep in and do succeed at times, unawares, very sneaky, getting in with false doctrine and things. And so we pray you protect those works from that as well. We pray for one Heidi that we've mentioned before. You know the circumstances there this past week. We pray that you will work in that circumstance. We pray, Lord, for David, who I saw had a little bit of an injury, it seems. We pray you'd help him. We thank you for Steve being among us again. What a blessing to see him and to have his fellowship in person. We pray for Sin May and the young ones that are off traveling. pray you grant them safety and an enjoyable time. Uh, For Crystal, who has a family burden, we just remember her and ask you to work in that circumstance. We pray, too, for the Wilsons uh, at Hiawatha. I haven't had an update lately about their situation, but we lovingly intercede for them and pray that you would give them peace and comfort. Today, Lord, also we want to return thanks for many years, 49, we have prayed and asked and beseeched and wondered if it would be possible for the old Supreme Court ruling in Roe v. Wade to be overturned. And we were pleased this week that it was. We thank you, Lord, that uh, this matter has been returned to uh, the state where at least some more work can be done. But we're mindful that this is not a panacea, this is not a cure-all. This doesn't change the hearts of men and women, and we see that in the news with the unbelievers raging because they cannot do what they sinfully want to do. And it just points out all the more the need for the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform hearts. And I pray that we will be the foremost purveyors of that gospel, the most bold witnesses, the most understanding, kind, loving, and firm of witnesses that can proclaim that truth accurately and relevantly to the community around us. We ask for your help to do this and that we would be bold and not fearful in the face of the raging nations that don't want the Lord nor his anointed to rule over them. And we just return thanks for what was done. We pray now the rest of our service would be honoring to you in Jesus' name. Amen.
I invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Jonah, please. I hope you have a Bible. You should have one with you, if I may be so bold as to say that. There it is. (laughs) That's right. Today we're going to come to uh, our title, Jonah and the Fish. Jonah and the Fish. God continues here to demonstrate his sovereignty over all things. And I want to just share a little bit about this with you here. The sailors, as you remember from when we left off last week, were already afraid because of the great storm that was upon them. It says in verse 5, the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. To their credit, in a sense, they became even more afraid when Jonah told them, what was going on. If you look in verse number 10, it says, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So when they found out that the Lord is the one who created the earth and the sea and Jonah was disobeying him and uh, the storm was getting worse, they feared even more than they did early on. They understood that Jonah was the cause of the danger that befell them and the loss of goods that they just threw overboard, their, their lives being at stake. They knew that. We'll see just a little bit about that in a moment. We ended by, last time by noting that the sailors asked Jonah why he fled from God. You know, he was not a murderer or another, some kind of reprobate person. He was a man who knew what God had told him to do, but he just simply did not do it. They were incredulous because they knew in their own religion that in their devotion to their gods, they understood there were certain things you had to do to keep those gods happy. As, as pagan as they were, they knew at least that much. And they knew not only were there things to be done, but there are things that had to be done in a right way. So here the unbelievers are teaching Jonah, you know, why did you do this dumb thing? If you violate those things that you know that you're supposed to be doing, then you're going to get in trouble with your God. Obviously their thinking was awash in pagan philosophy, but I think we can credit them with being right to this extent that they have some conscience left. They have some law of God written in their hearts, in their inner beings, placed there by God in the creation of humanity, and they knew intuitively that Jonah was doing something very dumb by disobeying the God that he professed to fear. And so it is, as we ended last time, for us, my friends, we profess, but we don't enact. You know, we say and then we are inconsistent. If we really believed God, if we really believed the gospel, would we live the way that we are living in certain areas of our life? And I think we should spend some time to think about that and ask uh, the Lord to help us. Let's read starting in verse 11 then and trust God's help in this. This morning it says in verse 11, then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? for the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that this great tempest 
is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not charge us with innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I didn't focus on this in my notes, but I just thought as I was reading to expose to you this idea. Think of these men pagan as they are, thinking, you're telling us we have to pitch you over the side in order to solve this problem. And they're thinking, the God who created the sea, we're now going to offend him by murdering somebody. Where is that going to leave us? What would stop the sea from just continuing on and take us right down to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea? Nothing, it seems. And so on their consciences is this heavy weight I mean, you may not have ever had to do anything. You haven't had to do anything like this, I presume, to make some kind of life and death decision and have to live with the consequences for the rest of your life. You know, even if you're, even if you're doing, even if you have to do something like that in the pursuit of righteousness, say you're a police officer and you have to shoot somebody and kill them to save the lives of others, You have to live with that for the rest of your life. And they're saying, Lord, don't kill us for doing this and don't allow us to be carrying around this weight of guilt. You see that? They they say both things, in fact. Please do not let us perish and do not charge us with innocent blood. And so imagine the weight of guilt that they would be feeling by it because they've thrown a guy overboard to his seemingly certain death. There's nowhere in here that indicates that, uh, you know, they saw uh, the fish come up and, and take Jonah off into the sunset, and they're like, oh, wow, that's so cool, you know. They had no clue that that happened, most likely, and so they really had a, a, a dilemma on their hands. The sailors, back to my notes in uh, the first or second page there under Roman numeral one, the note about the theology of retribution. I spent a little while talking about this in the notes. The sailors figured that someone had to be at fault for offending their God. How did they know this? Well, many religions and even modern philosophies hold to an idea like luck or karma or fate. You've, heard, you've all heard it, right? Bad luck, good luck, bad karma, good karma. Karma came back to bite him or uh, things like that or fate. They espouse the idea that you get what you deserve. For example, you may experience bad karma or a bad reincarnation if you do something bad. Or if you do something good, you may expect a reward to come to you. This is a very common human uh, philosophy, sort of a natural feature of human thinking. And it's true to a certain extent, right? You will reap what you sow. That's a biblical principle from Galatians 6, 7, and 8, and you see it in the Proverbs and elsewhere. And indeed, in the end, every person will be evaluated at a judgment, whether for believers or unbelievers. The believer's judgment before the throne of 
Christ when he rewards them for the good or not good things they've done. They more or less rewards than those who are unbelievers at the great white throne judgment, judged by their works indeed, yes, but their works will be found wanting because their works were evil. However, even though there is an aspect of truth to this, the, there are problems with it this idea of thinking of what we call retribution or mechanical retribution, really. Even if something is going to happen um, for a good or a bad thing done, the timing of that reward, we'll call it, is not necessarily immediate. Um, so connecting you know, somebody's sin to some consequence is fraught with uncertainty. How do you know that it was somebody on the boat that had to be have done something wrong. I mean, actually, if you lined up every one of those guys, not just Jonah, but the captain of the ship and all the hands on the ship, they all would have to say, I've sinned at some point. They've all done something wrong, and so why isn't it that their fault that the boat is floundering and this great storm has come upon them? Second, the second problem with this, there are exceptions to this rule that people try to make of getting what you deserve, at least in this life. Psalm 73 3, Asaph says he considered the wicked how they prosper. In fact, he almost considered it so much and was stuck in that mode of thinking that he says, I almost slipped. You know, I, I almost just stumbled. I, I went down in my theology because they seem to prosper. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon wrote that the righteous suffer. In Philippians 1.29, the Bible says it's, not, it's been given to you not only to believe in his name, but also to suffer for his sake. So righteous people do suffer, and wicked sometimes do prosper. Another problem with this idea of mechanical retribution is sometimes dreadful things happen with no reason of particular sin in the person's suffering. Look at the book of Job. The entire book, the, the thesis of the, the three slash four friends is, Job, you've sinned, therefore God has really let you have it. When the beginning of the book said Job was righteous, he was blameless, and the end of the book says the same thing. Of course, he, he struggled through the, the process of the, the trials and trying to justify in his mind what was going on, but uh, the entire book of Job is a huge example of how it's not necessarily the case that dreadful things happen because of somebody's particular sin for, fourth, fourth problem with this misunderstanding, this human philosophy, is that sometimes bad things happen to a person to highlight God's grace and mercy. Sometimes bad things happen to us and to you to highlight God's grace and mercy. And it's not a sowing and reaping type of thing at all. Look at John 9. Who, was, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And the Lord says, nobody, <laughs> none. Wrong answer, both wrong you know, options. There's a third option, that is that this was allowed in this man's life so that the grace and the glory and honor of God would be able to be displayed in his life. And then fifth, another problem with this naturalistic view of you get what you, you deserve. Uh, an extension of that prior point about God's grace is that God does not necessarily punish you for your sin in this life. If you believe in Christ... God will forgive your sins and certainly not punish you in the next for those. And so you can't say you always get what you deserve. In, in the case of believers, the righteous Jesus suffered in the place of the unrighteous. There's the prime example 
of a righteous person suffering for nothing that he did himself. Let me say this another way. If, if you're speaking to somebody who has a karma type of philosophy, this has happened to me uh, actually two or three times within the last couple of weeks. People have said something about good or bad luck, and I've just felt compelled to tell them there is no such thing as luck. God is in control of everything. There's no such thing as luck. But somebody who holds this kind of fate or karma philosophy and you're interacting with them, you could say something like this to them. Maybe you're witnessing to them. You say this, the reason I do not believe in karma is because of the good news of Jesus Christ. In other words, take it right to the gospel. God does not give his children the exact consequences that they deserve because if they believe in Christ, he takes away the penalty for their wrongdoing. The death of Christ paid for our wrongdoing, if we will accept it. In his resurrection, he will raise people from the grave as well and forever to enjoy the blessing of God, which is far better than what they deserve. So the gospel is a major exception clause to the idea that you get what you deserve. If you got what you deserve, yeah, our brother in the front row says, don't even go there. Yeah, should I? Should I? I, I think I'll obey his uh, admonition. You know what I mean. If, if it were really that way, and if people really understood that if they got what they deserved, if they knew what they deserved, they wouldn't be so quick to embrace a karma or fate kind of philosophy in their life because they would then understand that God is the standard for what is good and what one deserves or not deserves. Well, the upshot of all this is that we cannot pinpoint every adverse event on the sin of a particular person or even on their unlucky presence. You know, so-and-so was there and this bad thing happened. Perhaps the, the bad event was random from the human vantage point. Maybe there are other reasons we don't know about. Maybe God is doing something we don't know or understand yet. But in this case, in this case, we can know. Why? Because Jonah, a prophet, says, I know that this has happened because of me. So he has access to God somehow in his prophetic ministry, whereby he knows through revelation that this is his fault. Now, he knows that with a certainty that we cannot muster in our circumstances in life. You know, why did I just get into a car accident, say? I didn't get into a car accident, but I'm just making it up. Why, why did somebody just rear-end me? Because what? I was fleeing from God? You know, no, probably not. <laughs> Hopefully not. Hopefully you're not fleeing from God in your mind and running away from Him and what He wants you to do. Your conscience is is hounding you and you're saying, no, I'm not going to listen. I'm just going to keep going my own way. I'm going to ignore that. You know, you don't have to get on a boat and flee to Tarshish to be running away from God. You can be running a marathon in your head against God and you need to stop right now if you're running that marathon because God, God runs faster than anybody does. He'll catch up to you, okay? Yeah. He's already where you're going anyway, right? <laughs> Well, he says in verse 12, um, uh, 
you know, he, well, he told them, verse 10, and they, what are we going to do for you? And he said, pick me up and throw me into the sea, for I know that this great tempest is because of me. I, I do believe, as you've heard me explain, I do believe there's more than just Jonah's conscience bothering him. I think there's something of his prophetic aspect of his ministry here beginning to kick in. He's heard from God. I mean, it's not as if he just had this impression, well, like, maybe I should go to Nineveh. Nah, I'll, I'll do something else. He heard from God directly. And so he, he knows something is going on here. So what are we going to do about this fellow now? I mean, this, is, this guy being on this boat is, uh, is poison. We've got to get rid of him. We've got to fix this somehow. So the mariners asked Jonah what they could do to appease his God? Is there some sacrifice? Is there something? The dire situation was worsening. Uh, you know, could Jonah pray? Could Jonah repent? Could the men do something to try to make this situation right? I mean, can you imagine these poor guys on this ship once this becomes clear? You know, like, all of this is because of this lousy fellow? Why do... What did we do wrong to have to be endure this kind of thing? Could, could they ask God to save him and his fellow boat riders if, say, they turned the ship around and went back in the other direction? Let me ask that question of you in your life. When, someone, when you have sinned, what is there that can be done? I mean, obviously, we teach that you can repent and you can be washed from your sin if you believe in Christ. That's obvious, but I'm talking about it from a different angle a little bit. Sometimes in this life, there are no ways to repair the bad that is done by your sin. Sometimes what you do has permanent, lasting, bad consequences. A crime, if a person commits a crime, leaves a victim dead or permanently injured, mentally scarred, that just doesn't go away. Bystanders who observe the incident experience similar damage. War destroys things and kills people and injures them and traumatizes them, and none of that can be undone. Terrorism leaves fear in its wake. There are some things that simply cannot be undone or fixed. I don't want to you know, make it so it's morbid or it's, dis- it's discouraging or whatever, but you just have to admit once somebody's gone, they're gone. Once somebody has, has fried their brain with drugs, it's fried. Once you've you know, dated and married the wrong person, it's, it can be a problem, right? Uh, although it maybe seems attractive to our sinful natures to give in to our temptations. Or I'm going to run away from God, like Jonah. It is not at all worth it, neither in this life nor in the next. I don't, I don't know how I can express this, but maybe I can say it this way. Be sure to know that your sin oftentimes does not only affect you, it affects those around you. Your family members who are burdened because you're living that way, uh, your church family, the society around you is... is devolved in as much as you live in sin instead of living in righteousness. The choices that you make have consequences, and some of them are permanent consequences. 
Now note, I'm, I'm talking about the temporal consequences of sin here. I'm not talking about the guilt which can be gotten rid of. If you come to Christ, he takes your guilt upon himself and pays for that sin. But short of that, if you don't come to Christ, your, even your guilt can't be removed, and that would be a permanent consequence as well. When guilt is removed, as you come to Christ in faith and believe in him, say, God, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Please forgive me. I believe in Christ that he died for my sins and rose again. Some, well, certainly the guilt consequence goes away, but some of the temporal consequences may also be lessened. God may graciously do that for you. You've been, you've been rebelling against God. You've had a poor relationship with your family. You've had drugs or whatever else. When you get saved, maybe you're an alcoholic, God can help you with some of those things right off the bat and through the process of sanctification and restoration and reconciliation and forgiveness interpersonally and all of that. But other times, temporal consequences remain. They're stuck. There's nothing you can do about them. Now, something could be done in Jonah's case he could be thrown over, and, and the, the, as we know, the sea could be calm again, but the harm to the sailors was permanent. They lost cargo. They lost a few years off of their lives. They had all this fear. They'd have quite a story to tell their children and grandchildren, but I bet if you asked them, they would say, I'd rather not have that story to tell. You know, some of our dear servants who went off to the battlefield came back and didn't want to tell their stories because they were too horrific to tell, but they carried those with them for the rest of their lives. These sorts of things are far better to avoid in the first place, if at all possible. So the solution, throw the offender overboard. Um, you know, if you're ever in a boat that's in a storm, don't take this as normative teaching. What I mean is don't pick somebody on the boat and pitch them over and think that that's going to help you, okay? <laughs> in other words, these, this is what happened. I'm not going to try to make an application like, you know, throw the guy overboard to get rid of him. There is, there, we've already made the application. If there's sin in your life, you to throw that overboard. Throw that out. That's how to fix that problem. Um, you know, so don't, but don't apply the throw, throw person overboard or throw yourself overboard kind of thing. Because Jonah was a prophet, he knew what God wanted him to do. He might not have known the vehicle for his deliverance, but he knew from God how to answer the men's question, what do we do to you? And you're going to see in just a moment, I think, why this is. Very interesting, I think, as to what had to happen here. And somehow Jonah may, may not have understood why, but he's, he, he participated. Now, one thing that we notice here is finally Jonah is taking responsibility. He went down from where he grew up in Gath Heifer to Joppa, and he went down to hire a ship, and he went down into the ship, and, and uh, he was just fleeing from God. But he took responsibility now. Although he was going to suggest the men to throw him overboard, he was really casting himself upon God. He deserved whatever outcome God chose for him, but he had to do something to save the sailors' lives, and he trusted God would indeed spare them because he said, if you do this, the sea will become calm, then they'll be on their own, so to speak, to get back home. But they were not at fault for the iniquity that he had committed. But 
Uh, let's see if we can find this here. He says uh, in verse 12 again, For I know that this tempest, great tempest, is because of me. It's my fault. You've got to come to the point in your life where you say, the problems that I'm causing in my life, indeed, I'm causing them. It's not everybody around me. I am at fault. Personal responsibility for your ills, for your sins. You have to come to that point and stop looking at everybody else as if they're the problem. You're the problem. I'm the problem. We need to come to that just like Jonah has done on this boat. Now, the sailors did not have Jonah's confidence. You know, Jonah said, you throw me over, the sea is going to calm down. And maybe Jonah thought that God will somehow spare him. They thought throwing him overboard was the same as killing him, just like you and I would. And have that on your conscience for the rest of your life. So in verse 13, it tells us, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land. Do you see the respect? Look at the value that they put on Jonah's life. The respect. They didn't want to kill this guy. What lengths, to what lengths would you go to save somebody's life? We just had a big deal about this whole life issue this past week. People go to an extent to try to kill life today in the unbelieving community and say it's a right and we've lost our rights, which they never had in the first place. God never thought you had a right to kill a baby. But these people, they were trying to be somewhat pro-life here, weren't they? We don't want to throw this guy over. They tried to get back to land, but they found they're unable to do so because the more they tried, the more the wind blew against them. Now, evidently, they were close enough to land to make an attempt anyway. This situation reminds us that sometimes God puts people into places or circumstances where they have to obey the word of the prophet. In other words, God boxed these sailors in. There was nothing else they could do. They were stuck. They couldn't, like, escape out the side door, exit stage left to get out of this mess. They had to do what they were told that they had to do. So they prayed that God would not punish them. They did not want to die for doing something wrong like Jonah was seemingly about to experience, nor did they want to carry God's charge of guilt against them their whole lives. And so... It seemed that this drastic course of action was what God prescribed for them. It says uh, in verse 14, uh, after they prayed, God, don't charge us with this. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they came to the end of their resources and they said, oh, well, we're stuck. We've got to just do what it seems that God, this God of Jonah wants us to do. So they threw Jonah over the side. He plops into the roiled ocean, and the sea immediately becomes calm. So they learned, indeed, that God is the Lord of the sea. There was no doubt in their minds. You see, sometimes people think the sea is a god in this world, the god of the sea, maybe not a personal god that's separate from the sea, but the sea itself. No, that's not the case. Our God created the sea. He set its boundaries, didn't he? It cannot go beyond those boundaries, than he has put out there. So they learned God was the Lord of the sea. They, they had no doubt in their minds about that fact. Now, if you're a modern skeptic, you might doubt. But if you were there, I doubt you would doubt because you would have seen it for yourself. Now, they were 
not confused into thinking that the sea itself was a god. It was, it was an object that was under the control of another, an omnipotent power. They, like everyone else in the world, saw the general revelation that God gave and therefore intuitively know that God exists, that he's got the divine nature, and he has eternal power. So therefore, the Bible says they feared the Lord, verse 16, exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Boy, they're bouncing between pillar and post. They were afraid in the sea. They were exceedingly afraid in the storm, and now they're exceedingly fearing God. Now, I don't think that this means that these sailors became converts to Judaism. Let's not you know, go to that extent. We don't know just how much they changed. They may have added the God of the Hebrews to their polytheistic way of thinking, They did offer sacrifices and vows to God, notice at the end of verse 16. Um, And it may be that they made vows to God and when they got to land, they made sacrifices because I wonder how much was left on the ship for them to actually make a sacrifice with uh, if if they threw everything overboard. I don't know if they carried animals on this ship to sacrifice or whatever, but um, anyway, they did this. The minor issue of timing doesn't change the point whether they did it on the boat or after they got off. Jonah's errant cruise ride turned into a witness for God to these men. Now today, unlike these men, we do not need to see a miracle of this sort in order to fear God. We know better already because we read in the text of Scripture the things that God has done. He's made everything. He has commanded us to live for Him. We sinned against Him. He portioned out judgment. He helped the people of Israel cross the Red Sea on dry ground, cross the Jordan River on dry ground. He raised up Jesus Christ from the dead. He called all the prophets, revealed the word of God to us. We see and know all of that. We have no excuse about fearing God. We must fear the Lord. We must respect Him. We know about the teaching of life and death and resurrection, and we've experienced a miracle ourselves, I trust, in the new life, the new birth. Each one of us who is born again, we understand that something out of this world happened to us when we came to faith in Christ. Now we come to verse 17. There are several things about this passage that are amazing. The first is the timing and size of the storm on the Mediterranean Sea, which perfectly coincided with Jonah's flight from God. The second is the calming of the sea when Jonah was thrown into it. Again, something not explicable by mere chance or luck. The third amazing thing is that God provided a fish at the right moment to transport Jonah. And the fourth is that Jonah was in the guts of the fish for three days and three nights, more or less. Uh, To me, it appears that the first, the storm is a providential thing, because it came up at, as most storms do. The second is, is more than mere providence, that is, the calming of the sea when Jonah was thrown in. It seems to me the suddenness of that has to be miraculous. Just like when Jesus told the storm to be still in Mark 4:39, and it was so, that was not just a providential act of God. The third, about the fish, Uh, seems to me to be somewhat providential because the fish are always moving about in their tours of the ocean, the great seas of the world. Um, Although you could say God, I mean, providentially provided this particular fish at this particular place and time. And then the fourth 
amazing thing that Jonah was able to survive in the guts of this fish, as I call it, uh, was just a plain old miracle in my estimation as well. Um, I believe that God, and this is what I was alluding to earlier, did not permit other solutions to Jonah's debacle, the sailor's problem. He did not provide other solutions like rowing back to land or Jonah simply praying to repent because God knew that this incident was destined to become a sign that was used by Jesus when he talked to the people of Israel and said, no sign will be given to you except for the sign of the prophet Jonah, who as he was in the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. So unfortunately for Jonah, back at this time, he had to go through with this in order to make this sign come to be available for Jesus to be able to use in his future teaching. He himself was going to be a sign for the coming Messiah. Now, it also served to be a punishment for his disobedience. And as the Lord's burial and resurrection had a miraculous component to those events, so the sign of Jonah also has to have a miraculous aspect. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a sign, really, of the sort we're talking about with the resurrection of Christ. As with Ezekiel and the other prophets, listen, not only are the words of the prophets if you will, a sign from God, but sometimes the very lives and activities and behavior of the prophets themselves are a sign. Remember Ezekiel? Uh, Lie on your side. Uh, Don't say anything. No words. Or uh, go out through the city wall, kind of dig through there and take your stuff as if you're in exile. And that's a lesson to the people of Israel. And when they asked him, he said, this is what you're going to do. So in his life, he became a sign. And so Jonah also would become a sign in the the event that happened to him. Now, the text tells us that this fish was exceptionally large. It says in verse number 17, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish. That's got to be a pretty big fish, doesn't it? To be able to hold, contain a adult man. Now, the text here does not differentiate between a whale and a fish. Uh, The the word in Hebrew doesn't make that distinction. A whale is a warm-blooded, air-breathing mammal, and a fish is a cold-blooded, gilled animal that breathes breathes the water, you know, extracts oxygen from it. Um, And confusingly enough, the largest species of fish, you know what it is? It's called a whale shark. So that makes it even worse because then we've got fish and whale and, oh, it's just confusing. But it is indeed a fish. This type of fish, not whale, can grow up to 39 feet in length and uh, somebody said up to 40 tons in weight. Now, that's easily large enough to swallow a man, like the illustrations I gave last week about uh, the fellow off Cape Cod who was swallowed up in the mouth of a humpback whale. Um, And I said, you know, fortunately for the man, uh, you know, not every fish or whale could accommodate a man down through its esophagus. So that guy didn't go down any farther than the mouth of this fish. 
very, very, uh, it's just great before lunch, isn't it, to be talking about that? <laughs> I see somebody out here just cringing. I had to say it. <laughs> um, incidentally, I recall over years a past of people making definitive statements that this animal was definitely a fish and not a whale or something similar to that. And I'm unable to do that from this text. Uh, you say, it says fish. Yeah, well, that's a, a good translation of the Hebrew word dog or dag, which is the word for fish, but it doesn't differentiate between classes of water-dwelling creatures like we do, whether a fish or a whale, gills or air-breathing. And personally, whenever I've heard people say that stuff, I have never got, I've never understood what's the big deal. Maybe somebody can enlighten me to that. What's, what distinction is supposed to be so important there? This fish could have been God's special Leviathan that we read about elsewhere. In Job in 3 and chapter 41 also, you read about this Leviathan who really, some translations put it like a giant sea monster. Uh, impossible for man to control, but is used as an illustration of God's superior power because he says to Job, you know, are, are you going to you know, cast in and hook this fish and bring it in, the sea monster? You don't have a, I mean, the sea monster laughs at your javelins. You're not able to take this, but God is able to. Um, so maybe it was Leviathan, maybe not, but it doesn't matter. This was, this was no problem for God. Now, how exactly Jonah could be positioned inside the fish? How did he get enough air to survive? That's all unknown to me. That's because it's a miracle. Yes, a miracle. I don't know. And, and if, you're, if you were to demand me to make some naturalistic physical explanation, I would say, first of all, I can't do that. Second of all, I don't have to. The burden of proof is not upon me to do that. I think the text is sufficient to stand on its own that you believe in God and you believe in his word and you believe that this occurred. And the illustrations that I gave last week are really just to kind of excite the imagination and say, wow, what if, you know, you were snorkeling and some humpback whale came and swallowed you up, uh, that this sort of thing actually has happened multiple times in, in history and so it becomes less how can you say, difficult to believe. Those, but that doesn't really help, uh, doesn't help an unbeliever. Those evidences simply help believers to say, oh yeah, I mean, that it certainly has happened before. But it doesn't change our view that this text is breathed out by God, that it's accurate, that it's telling us, and in fact, we said last week, the Lord Jesus put his stamp on it and said, look, this is what happened. And the same thing is used as a sign for the Lord's dwelling in the heart of the earth for three days and nights as he finished on the cross and was buried to prove that he was dead and then rose again from the dead. So it's enough to know God arranged all of this to accomplish his purposes and the omnipotent God is able to do it. I frankly don't want to imagine too much. I mean, like put yourself in Jonah's shoes and think what, I mean, do you know how it feels to drown, to choke, to not be able to breathe, to pass out, to come in and out of consciousness, hallucinations, to be able to pray, as we're going to see next time, in the belly of this fish, you know, to, vom to be vomited out? I mean, it's too much to think. It's too terrible. 
to think about what this man went through. My friends, it's all nothing compared to what people will go through if they don't repent. And they spend an eternity apart from God as the rich man in Lazarus. Remember that in Luke chapter 16? And the rich man was in torment there saying, please do something to give me relief. And Abraham says, can't do anything. You're stuck. You made your choice. You chose to depart from the way of God. All the events that we read about here in Jonah were under the direct control of God, as is everything in this world. That's why there's no such thing as luck. As difficult as things may seem to be for you in your life moment at this moment, remember, God is in charge. God is in charge of those things. And remember, you may have brought upon yourself some of your own situation by sinning against the Lord. It's, I'm, what I said at the beginning of the message is not to, to say, you know, like, it never happens that your sin causes you to have problems. Often, in fact, it does cause you to have problems. But consider this, if you're running from God in your life and things are not going well, you should really change course before you create permanent damage, both to you and other people around you, and before God metaphorically throws you overboard to teach you a lesson or two on the way back to dry land. Mm. Stay away from that, my friends. Walk with God. Draw near to Him. And if you're off, you know, read that devotional in the bulletin. Return to me, God says. Return. Draw near to me. And God says, I will draw near to you. And sometimes God has to reel you in to draw you a little nearer by using a fish in the case of Jonah. Probably not in your case, but what, what instrument might God use that might be unpleasant for you? I don't know, but just be walking with the Lord and not worrying about it then. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to you for allowing us to see a few spiritual lessons here from Jonah and to think about the primacy of your word and, of course, your sovereignty over all things, including a storm and sailors and a fish and even the heart and mind of the prophet. We look forward to seeing the what we'll look at in the rest of the book in chapters 2, 3, and 4. And Lord, I pray that these messages will be helpful to keep us on the straight and narrow path, to warn us off from sin, to put a guardrail around us so that we, and if we're on the other side of that guardrail, Lord, please, whoever is, take them and help them to jump back into the right path and get out of the danger zone that they're in right now. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.